0: because I'm starting all over. I apologize if you are on the live streams. Hello and welcome to this Tuesday, August 27th, 2019 episode of the Law of Success Mastermind. Now, we are on part two of two with the Law of Success Enthusiasm. Deliberately place in your own mind, through the principle of auto-suggestion, the ambition to succeed through the aid of a definite chief aim. And notice how quickly all all of your latent or undeveloped ability in the nature of past experiences will become stimulated and aroused to action in your behalf. Plant in a boy's mind, through the principle of suggestion, the ambition to become a successful lawyer, or a doctor, or entrepreneur, or engineer, or businessman, or financier. And if you plant that suggestion deeply enough and keep it there, by repetition, it will begin to move that boy toward the achievement of the object of that ambition. If you would plant a suggestion deeply, if you would plant a suggestion deeply, mix it generously with enthusiasm, for enthusiasm is the fertilizer that will ensure its rapid growth as well as its permanency. When that kind-hearted old gentleman planted in my mind the suggestion that I was a bright boy, that I could make my mark in the world if I would educate myself, it was not so much what he said as it was the way in which he said it that made me such a deep and lasting impression, that made such a deep and lasting impression on my mind. It was the way in which he gripped my shoulders and the look of confidence in his eyes that drove his suggestion so deeply into my subconscious mind that it never gave me any peace until I commenced taking the steps that led to the fulfillment of the suggestion. This is a point that I would stress with all the power at my command. It is not so much what... You say, as it is the tone and manner in which you say it, that makes a lasting impression. It naturally follows, therefore, that sincerity of purpose, honesty, and earnestness must be placed back of all that one says, if one would make a lasting and favorable impression. Whatever you successfully sell to others, you must first sell to yourself. Not long ago, I was approached by an agent of the government of Mexico, who sought my services as a writer of propaganda for the administration in charge at that time. His approach was about as follows. Whereas, señor has a reputation as an exponent of the Golden Rule philosophy, and whereas Señor is known throughout the United States as an independent who is not allied with any political faction, now, therefore, would Signor be... Gracious enough to come to Mexico, study the economic and political affairs of that country, then return to the United States and write a series of articles to appear in the newspapers, recommending to the people of America the immediate recognition of Mexico by the government of the United States, etc. For this service, I was offered more money than I shall perhaps ever possess during my entire lifetime. But I refused the commission, and for a reason that will fail to impress anyone except those who understand the principle which makes it necessary for all who would influence others to remain on good terms with their own conscience. I could not write convincingly of Mexico's cause for the reason that I did not believe in that cause. Therefore, I could not have mixed sufficient enthusiasm with my writing to have made it effective even though i had been willing to prostitute my talent and dip my pen into ink that i knew to be muddy i will not endeavor to further i will not endeavor further to explain my philosophy on this incident for the reason that those who are far enough advanced in the study of auto-suggestion will not need further explanation while those who are not far enough advanced would not and could not understand. No man can afford to express through words or acts that which is not in harmony with his own belief, and if he does so he must pay by the loss of his ability to influence others. Please read aloud the foregoing paragraph. It is worth emphasizing, by repetition, for lack of of observation of the principle upon which it is based constitutes the rocks and reefs upon which many a man's definite chief aim dashes itself to pieces. I do not believe that I can afford to try to deceive anyone about anything, but I know then I cannot afford to try to deceive myself. I do, to do so would destroy the power of my pen and render my words ineffective. It is only when I write with the fire of enthusiasm burning in my heart that my writing impresses others favorably. And it is only when I speak from a heart that is bursting with belief in my message that I can move my audience to accept that message. It Is, is there not food for thought in the fact that no newspaper has ever, ever published any account of wild drinking parties or any other similar scandals in connection with the names of Edison, Ford, Rockefeller, and most of the other really big fellows? Yeah, because I don't do it. I would also have you read aloud the foregoing paragraph. Yes, I would have you commit it to memory. Even before, even more than this, I would have you write it out and place it where it may serve as a daily reminder of a principle, nay, a law as immutable as the law of gravitation, without which you can never become a power in your chosen life work. There have been nine times and many of them, I'm sorry, there have been times and many of them when it appeared that if I stood by this principle, it would mean starvation. There have been times when my closest friends and business advisers have strongly urged me to shade my philosophy for the sake of gaining a needed advantage here and there. But somehow I have managed to cling to it mainly, I suppose, for the reason that I have preferred peace and harmony in my own heart to the material gain that I might have had by a forced compromise with my conscience. Strange as it may seem, my deliberations and conclusions on this subject of refusing to strangle my own conscience have seldom been based upon what is commonly called honesty. That which I have done in the matter of refraining from writing or speaking anything that I did not believe has been solely a question of honor between my conscience and myself. I have tried to express that which my heart dictated because I have gained because I have aimed to give my words flesh. It might be said that my motive was based more upon self-interest than it was on a desire to be fair with others, although <clears throat> I have never desired to be unfair with others so far as I am able to analyze myself. No man can become a master salesman if he compromises with falsehood. Murder will out, and even though no one ever catches him red-handed in expressing that which he does not believe, his words will fail in the accomplishment of their purpose because he cannot give them flesh. If they do not come from his heart, and if they are not mixed with genuine, unadulterated enthusiasm. I would also have read aloud the foregoing paragraph, for it embraces a great law that you must understand and apply before you can become a person of influence in any undertaking. In making these requests for the sake of emphasis, I am not trying to take undue liberties with you. I am giving you full credit for being an adult, a thinker, an intelligent person, yet I know how likely you are to skip over these vital laws without being sufficiently impressed by them to make them a part of your own workaday philosophy. I know your weakness because I know my own. It has required the better part of 25 years of ups and downs, mostly downs, to impress these basic truths upon my mind so that they influenced me i have tried them i have tried both them and their opposites therefore i can i can speak not as one who merely believes in their soundness but as one who knows and what do i mean by these truths So that you cannot possibly misunderstand my meaning, and so that these words of warning cannot possibly convey an abstract meaning, I will state that by these truths I mean this. You cannot afford to suggest to another person, by word of mouth or by an act of yours, that which you do not believe. You cannot afford to suggest to another person, by word of mouth or by an act of yours, that which you do not believe. Surely, that is plain enough. And the reason you cannot afford to do so is this. If you compromise with your own conscience, it will not be long before you will have no conscience. For your conscience will fail to guide you just as an alarm clock will fail to awaken you if you do not heed it. Surely, that is plain enough also. And how do I happen to be an authority on this vital subject? Do you ask? I am an authority because I have experimented with the principle until I know how it works. But you may ask, how do I know that you are telling the truth. The answer is that you will know only by experimenting for yourself and by observing others who faithfully apply this principle and those who do not apply it. If my evidence needs backing, then consult any man whom you know to be a person who has tried to get by without observing this principle. And if he will not or cannot give you the truth, you can get it, nevertheless, by analyzing the man. There is but one thing in the world that gives a man real, enduring power, and that is character. Reputation. Bear in mind, is not character. Reputation is that which people are believed to be. Character is is that which people are. If you would be a person of great influence, then be a person of real character. Character is the philosopher's lodestone through which all who have it may turn the base metals of their life into pure gold. Without character, you have nothing. You are nothing, and you can be nothing, except a pile of flesh and bone and hair. Worth perhaps $25. Character is something that cannot—that you cannot beg or steal or buy. You can get it only by building it. And you can build it by your own thoughts and deeds and in no other way. Through the aid of auto-suggestion, any person can build a sound character. No matter what his past has been. As a fitting clothes. For this lesson, I wish to emphasize the fact that all who have character have enthusiasm and personality sufficient to draw to them others who have character. You will now be instructed as to how you shall proceed in developing enthusiasm, in the event that you do not already possess this rare quality. The instructions will be simple but you will be unfortunate if you discount their value on that account. First, complete the remaining lessons of this course, because other important instructions which are to be coordinated with this one will be found in subsequent lessons. Second, if you have not already done so, write out your definite chief aim in clear or simple language. And follow this by writing out the plan through which you intend to transform your aim into reality. Third, read over the description of your definite chief aim each night, just before retiring. And, if, and as you read, see yourself in your imagination in full possession of the object of your aim. Do this with... Full faith in your ability to transform your definite chief aim into reality. Read aloud with all the enthusiasm at your command, emphasizing every word. Repeat this reading until the small, still voice within you tells you that your purpose will be realized. Sometimes, you will feel the effects of this voice from within the first time you read your definite chief aim while at other times you may have to read it a dozen or fifty times before the assurance comes. But do not stop until you feel it. If you prefer to do so, you may read your definite chief aim as a prayer. The remainder of this lesson is for the person who has not yet learned the power of faith and who knows little or nothing of the principle of auto-suggestion. To all who are in this class, I would recommend the reading of the 7th and 8th verses of the 7th chapter and the 20th verse of the 17th chapter of St. Matthew. One of the greatest powers for good upon the face of this earth is faith. To this marvelous power may be traced miracles of the most astounding nature. It offers peace on earth to all who embrace it. Faith involves a principle that is so far-reaching in its effect that no man can say what are its limitations, or if it has limitations. Write into the description of your definite chief aim a statement of the qualities that you intend to develop in yourself and the station in life that you intend to attain. And have faith as you read this description each night that you can transform this purpose into reality. Surely, you cannot miss the suggestion contained in this lesson. To become successful, you must be a person of action. Merely to know is not sufficient. It is necessary both to know and do. Enthusiasm is the mainspring of the mind, which urges one to put knowledge into into action. Billy Sunday is the most successful evangelist this country has ever known. For the purpose of studying his technique and checking up on his psychological methods, the author of this course went through three campaigns with Reverend Sunday. His success is based very largely upon one word, enthusiasm. If you think your lot in life has been hard, read up, read up, from slavery by Booker T Washington and you may see how fortunate you have been by making effective use of the law of suggestion billy sunday conveys his own spirit of enthusiasm to the minds of his followers and they become influenced by it he sells his sermons by the use of exactly the same sort of strategy employed by many master salesmen enthusiasm is as essential to a salesman as water is to a duck all successful sales managers understand the psychology of enthusiasm and make use of it in various ways as a pr- as practical means of helping their men produce more sales practically all sales organizations have get-together meetings at stated times For the purpose of revitalizing the minds of all members of the sales force and injecting the spirit of enthusiasm, which can be best done en masse through group psychology. Sales meetings might properly be called revival meetings because their purpose is to revive interest and and arouse enthusiasm, which will enable the salesman to take up the fight with renewed ambition and energy. During his administration as sales manager of the National Cash Register Company, Hugh Chalmers, who later became famous in the motor car industry, faced a most embarrassing situation which threatened to wipe out his position as well as that of thousands of salesmen under his direction. The company was in financial difficulty. This fact had become known to the salesmen in the field and the effect of it was to cause them to lose their enthusiasm. Sales began to dwindle until finally the conditions became so alarming that a general meeting of the sales organization was called to be held at the company's plant in Dayton, Ohio. Salesmen were called in from all over the country. Mr. Chalmers presided over the meeting. He began by calling on several of his best salesmen to get on their feet and tell what was wrong out in the field that orders had fallen off. One by one they got up, as called, and each man had a most terrible tale of grief to unfold. Business conditions were bad. Money was scarce. People were holding off buying until after the presidential election, <laughs> etc. As the fifth man began to enumerate the difficulties which had kept him from making his usual quota of sales, Mr. Chalmers jumped up on top of a table, held up his hands for silence, and said, Stop! I order this convention to come to a close for ten minutes while I get my shoes shined. Then, turning to a small colored boy who sat nearby, he ordered the boy to bring his shoe shine outfit and shine his shoes right where he stood on top of the table. The salesmen in the audience were astounded. Some of them thought that Mr. Chalmers had suddenly lost his mind. They began to whisper among themselves. Meanwhile, the little colored boy shined first one, and then the other shoe, taking plenty of time and doing a first-class job. After the job was finished, Mr. Chalmers handed the boy a dime, then went ahead with his speech. I want each of you, said he, to take a good look at this little colored boy. He has the concession for shoe-shining throughout our plant and offices. His predecessor was a white boy, considerably older than himself, And despite the fact that the company subsidized him with a salary of $5 a week, he could not make a living in this plant, where thousands of people are employed. This little colored boy not only makes a good living without any subsidy from the company, but he is actually saving money out of his earnings each week, working under the same conditions in the same plant for the same people. Now, I wish to ask you a question. Whose fault was it that the white boy did not get more business? Was it his fault or the fault of his buyers? In a mighty roar from the crowd, the answer came back, It was the boy's fault, of course. Just so, replied Chalmers. And now I want to tell you this. That you are selling cash registers in the same territory to the same people with exactly the same business conditions that existed a year ago. Yet you are not producing the business that you were then. Now, whose fault is that? Is it yours or the buyer's? And again, and again, the answer came back with a roar. It is our fault, of course. I am glad that you are frank to acknowledge your faults, Chalmers continued. And I now wish to tell you what your trouble is. You have heard rumors about this company being in financial trouble and that has killed off your enthusiasm so that you are not making the effort that you formerly made. If you will go back into your territories with a definite promise to send in five orders each during the next 30 days, this company will no longer be in financial difficulty for that additional business will see us clear. Will you do it? They said they would, and they did. That incident has gone down in the history of the National Cash Register Company under the name of Hugh Chalmers Million Dollar shine, For it is said that this turned the tide in the company's affairs and was worth millions of dollars. Enthusiasm knows no defeat. The sales manager who knows how to send out an army of enthusiastic salespeople may set his own price on his services. And what is more important even than this, he he can increase the earning capacity of every person under his direction. Thus, his enthusiasm benefits not only himself, but perhaps hundreds of others. Enthusiasm is never a matter of chance. There are certain stimuli which produce enthusiasm, the most important of these being as as follows. Occupation and work which one loves best. 2. Environment where one comes in contact with others who are enthusiastic and optimistic. 3. Financial success. 4. Complete mastery and application in one's daily work of the 15 laws of success. 5. Good health. 6. Knowledge that one has served others in some helpful manner. 7. Good clothes appropriate to the needs of one's occupation. All of these seven sources of stimuli are self-explanatory with the exception of the last. The psychology of clothes is understood by very few people and for this reason, One moment. all of these seven sources of stimuli are self-explanatory with the exception of the last. The psychology of clothes is is understood by very few people, and for this reason it will be here explained in detail. Clothes constitute the most important part of the embellishment which every person must have in order to feel self-reliant, hopeful, and enthusiastic. Oh yeah, I feel way better when I—oops—when I'm, I'm wearing a particular outfit. This is the undershirt for that outfit. Then another outfit on top. Problem is, is that there are excuses. That's the problem of it. <laughs> But I'm working on that, and that's why I'm reading this. That's why I'm doubling down. I know that this is important stuff. I need to embed it to uh, for auto-suggestion in my mind. The more I do this, the more it gets embedded in my mind, and I'm just like, Ah, I've got to live this way, or else I'm a horrible person. <laughs> so... It's interesting because it's really making me double down on on being the person I need to be no matter how much adversity and defeat. This is a great chapter. The Psychology of Good Clothes When the good news came from the theater of war on November the 11th, 1918, my worldly possessions amounted to but My worldly possessions amounted to but little more than they did the day I came into the world. The war had destroyed my business and made it necessary for me to make a new start. My wardrobe consisted of three well-worn business suits and two uniforms which I no longer needed. Knowing all too well that the world forms its first and most lasting impressions, of a man by the clothes he wears, I lost no time in visiting my tailor. Happily, my tailor had known me for many years. Therefore, he did not judge me entirely by the clothes I wore. If he had, I would have been sunk. With less than a dollar in change in my pocket, I picked out the cloth for three of the most expensive suits I ever owned and ordered that they be made up for me at once. The suits came to three hundred and seventy-five dollars. I shall never forget the remark made by the tailor as he took my measure, glancing first at the three bolts of expensive cloth which I had selected, and then at me. He inquired, Dollar a year, man. Eh? Uh, no, said I. If I had been fortunate enough to get... On the dollar a year payroll, I might now have enough money to pay for these suits. The tailor looked at me with surprise. I don't think he got the joke. One of the suits was a beautiful dark gray. One was a dark blue. The other was a light blue with a pinstripe. Fortunately, I was in good standing with my tailor. Therefore, he did not ask when I was going to pay for those expensive suits. All anyone really requires is a capital on which to start a successful career, is a sound mind. All anyone really requires as a capital on which to start a successful career is a sound mind, a healthy body, and a genuine desire to be of as much service as possible to as many people as possible. I knew that I could and would pay for them in due time, but could I have convinced him of that? This was the thought which was running through my mind, with hope against hope that the question would not be brought up. I then visited my haberdasher, from whom I purchased three less expensive suits, and a complete supply of the best shirts, collars, ties, hosiery, and underwear that he carried. My bill at the Haberdashers amounted to a little over $300. With an air of prosperity, I nonchalantly signed the charge ticket and tossed it back to the salesman, with instructions to deliver my purchase the following morning. The feeling of renewed self-reliance and success had begun to come over me, even before I had attired myself in my newly purchased outfit. I was out of the war and $675 in debt, all in less than 24 hours. The following day, the first of the three suits ordered from the haberdasher was delivered. I put it on at once. Stuffed a new silk handkerchief in the outside pocket of my coat, shoved the $50 I had borrowed on my ring down into my pants pocket, and walked down Michigan Boulevard in Chicago, feeling as rich as Rockefeller. Every article of clothing I wore from my underwear out was of the very best, that it was not paid for for That it was not paid for was nobody's business except mine and my tailors and my haberdashers. Every morning I dressed myself in an entirely new outfit, and walked down the same street at precisely the same hour. That hour happened to be the time when a certain wealthy publisher usually walked down the same street, on his way to lunch. I made it my business to speak to him each day, and occasionally I would stop for a minute's chat with him. After this daily meeting had been going on for about a week, I met this publisher one day, but decided I would see if he would let me get by without speaking. Watching him from under my eyelashes, I looked straight ahead and started to pass him when he stopped and motioned me over to the edge of the sidewalk, placed his hand on my shoulder, looked me over from head to foot, and said, he looked damned prosperous for a man who just laid aside a uniform. Who makes your clothes? Well, said I, Wilkie and Celery made this particular suit. He then wanted to know what sort of business I was engaged in. That airy atmosphere of prosperity which I had been wearing, along with a new and different suit every day, had gotten the better of his curiosity. I had hoped that it would. Flipping the ashes from my Havana perfecto, I said Oh, I am preparing the copy for I am preparing the copy for a new magazine that I am going to publish. A new magazine, eh? Huh? he queried. And what are you going to call it? It is to be named Hill's Golden Rule Don't forget said my publisher friend, that I am in the business of printing and distributing magazines. Perhaps I can serve you also. That was the moment for which I had been waiting. I had that very moment and almost the very spot of ground on which we stood in mind when I was purchasing those new suits. But... Is it necessary to remind you that conversation never would have taken place had this publisher observed me walking down that street from day to day with a whipped dog look on my face, an unimpressed suit on my back, and a look of poverty in my eyes? An appearance of prosperity attracts attention always, and no exceptions whatsoever. With no exceptions whatsoever. Moreover, I... A look of prosperity attracts favorable attention, because the one dominating desire in every human heart is to be prosperous. My publisher friend invited me to his club for lunch. Before the coffee and cigars had been served, he had talked me out of the contract for printing and distributing my magazine. I even consented to permit him to supply the capital without any interest charge. Okay, so that must have, that meant the opposite back then. Talked me out of the contract. <laughs> For the benefit of those who are not familiar with the publishing business, may I not offer the information? that considerable capital is required for launching a new nationally distributed magazine. This was a hundred years ago, mind you. Capital in such large amounts is often hard to get, even with the best of security. The capital necessary for launching Hill's Golden Roll magazine, which you may have read, was well above $30,000 and every cent of it was raised on a front, created mostly by good clothes true there may have been some ability back of my clothes but many millions of men have ability who never have anything else and who are never heard of outside of the limited community in which they live this is a rather sad truth and even now they've done studies you can see countless studies i think Neil Patel did a study where he just wore clothes and had a fancy car and it proved that he made more money. Pretty sure it was him. It was someone like that. To some, it may seem an unpardonable extravagance for one who was broke to have gone in debt for $675 worth of clothes. But the psychology back of that investment more than justified it. The appearance of prosperity not only made a favorable impression on those to whom I had to look for favors, but of more importance still was the effect that proper attire had on me. I w- I not only knew that correct clothes would impress others favorably, but I also knew but I knew also that the good clothes would give me an atmosphere of self-reliance without which I could not hope to regain my lost fortunes. I got my first training in the psychology of good clothes from my friend Edwin C. Barnes, who is a close business associate of Thomas A. Edison. Barnes afforded considerable amusement for the Edison staff when, some twenty-odd years ago, he rode into West Orange on a freight train, not being able to raise sufficient money for passenger fare, and announced at the Edison offices that he had come to enter into a partnership with Mr. Edison. Nearly everybody around the Edison plant laughed at Barnes, except Edison himself. He saw something in the square jaw and determined face of young Barnes, which most the others did not see. Despite the fact that the young man looked more like a tramp, than he did a future partner of the greatest inventor on earth. Barnes got his start sweeping floors in the Edison offices. That was all he sought. Just a chance to get a toehold in the Edison organization. From there on, he made history that is well worth emulation by other young men who wish to make make places for themselves. Barnes has now retired from active business even though he is still a comparatively young man, and spends most of his time at two beautiful homes in Bradenton, Florida, Bradenton, Florida, and Demarestota, Maine, he is a multi- multi-millionaire, prosperous and happy. I first became acquainted with Barnes during the early days of his association with Edison, before he had arrived. In those days, he had the largest and most expensive collection of clothes I had ever seen or heard of one man owning. His wardrobe consisted of thirty-one suits, one for each day of the month. He never wore the same suit two days in succession. Moreover, all his suits were of the most expensive type. Incidentally, his clothes were made by the same tailors who made those three suits for me. He wore socks, which cost $6 per pair. His shirts and other wearing apparel cost in similar proportion. His cravets were specially made at a cost of from $5 to $7 and a half each. One day, in a spirit of fun, I asked him to save some of his old suits which he did not need, for me. He informed me that he hadn't a single suit, which he did not need. He then gave me a lesson on the psychology of clothes, which is well worth remembering. I do not wear thirty-one suits of clothes, said he, entirely for the impression they make on other people. I do it mostly for the impression that they have on me. There is a suitable reward for every virtue and appropriate punishment for every sin a man commits. Both the reward and the punishment are effects over which no man has control as they come upon him voluntarily. Barnes then told me of the day when he presented himself at the Edison plant for a position. He said he had to walk around the plant a dozen times before he worked up enough courage to announce himself. Because he knew that he looked more like a tramp than he did a desirable employee. Barnes is said to be the most able salesman ever connected With the great inventor of West Orange, his entire fortune was made through his ability as a salesman. but he was often sa- but it has often but he has often said that he was he never could have accomplished the results which have made him both wealthy and famous had it not been for his understanding of the psychology of clothes. I have met every salesman in my time. I have met many salesmen in my time. During the past 10 years I have personally trained and directed the efforts of more than 3,000 salespeople, both men and women, and I I have observed that without a single exception, the star producers were all people who understood and made good use of the psychology of clothes. I have seen a well-dressed I have seen a few well-dressed people who made no outstanding records as salesmen, but I have yet to see the first poorly dressed man who became a star producer in the field of selling. I have studied the psychology of clothes for so long, and I have watched its effect on people in so many different walks of life that I am fully convinced there is a cloth close connection between clothes and success. Personally, I feel no need of 31 suits of clothes. But if my personality demanded a wardrobe of this size, I would manage to get it, no matter how much it might cost. To be a well-dressed man should have at least 10 suits of clothes. He should have a different suit for each of the seven days of the week, a full dress suit and a tuxedo for formal evening occasions, and a cutaway for formal afternoon occasions. For summer wear, he should have an assortment of at least four appropriate light suits with blue coat and white flannel trousers for informal afternoon and evening occasions. If he plays golf, he should have at least one golf suit. This, of course, is for the man who is a notch or two above the mediocre class. The man who is satisfied with mediocrity needs but few clothes. It may be true, as a well-known poet has said, that clothes do not make the man, but no one can deny the fact that good clothes go a very long way toward giving him a favorable start. A man's bank will generally loan him all the money he wants when he does not need it when he is prosperous but never go to the bank for a loan with a shabby-looking suit on your back and a look of poverty in your eyes for if you do you'll get the gate success attracts success there is no escape from the great universal law from this great universal law Therefore, if you wish to attract success, make sure that you look the part of success, whether your calling is that of a day laborer or merchant prince. For the benefit of the more dignified students of this philosophy, who may object to resorting to stunt stimuli or trick clothing as a means of achieving success, it may be profitably explained that practically every successful man on earth has discovered some form of stimulus through which he can and does drive himself on to greater effort. It may be shocking to members of the Anti-Saloon League, but it is said to be true, nevertheless, that James Whitcomb Riley wrote his best poems when he was under the influence of alcohol. His stimulus was liquor. The author wishes to distinctly under wishes it distinctly understood that he does not recommend the use of alcoholic or narcotic stimuli for any purpose whatsoever, as either will eventually destroy both body and mind of all who use them. Under the influence of alcohol, Riley became imaginative, enthusiastic, and an entirely different person, according to close personal friends of his. Edwin Barnes spurred himself into the necessary action to produce outstanding results with the aid of good clothes. Some men rise to great heights of achievement as the result of love for some woman. Connect this with the brief suggestion to the subject which was made in the introduction, and you will, if you are a person who knows the ways of men, be able to finish the discussion of this particular phrase of enthusiasm stimulus without further comment by the author, which might not be appropriate for the younger minds that will assimilate this philosophy. Underworld characters who are engaged in the dangerous business of highway robbery, burglary, etc., generally dope themselves for the occasion of their operations with cocaine, morphine, and other narcotics. Even in this, there is a lesson which shows that practically all men need temporary or artificial stimuli to drive them to greater effort than that normally employed in the ordinary pursuits of life. Successful people have discovered ways and means which they believe best suited to their own needs to produce stimuli which cause them to rise to heights of endeavor above the ordinary. One of the most successful writers in the world employs an orchestra of beautifully dressed young women who play for him while he writes. Seated in a room that has been artistically decorated to suit his own taste, under lights that have been colored, tinted, and softened, these beautiful young ladies, dressed in handsome evening gowns, played his favorite music. To use his own words, I became drunk with enthusiasm under the influence of this environment, and rise to heights I never know or feel on other occasions. It is then that I do my work. The thoughts pour in on me as if they were dictated by an unseen and unknown power. This author gets much of his inspiration from music and art once a week he spends at least an hour in an art museum looking for looking at the works of the masters on these occasions again using his own words i get enough enthusiasm from from one hour's visit in the museum of art to carry me for two days edgar Allan poe wrote the raven when it is reported he was more than half intoxicated. Oscar Wilde wrote his poems under the influence of a form of stimulus which cannot be appropriately mentioned in a course of this nature. Henry Ford, so it is believed by this author who admits that this is merely the author's opinion, got his real start as the result of his love for his charming life companion. It was she who inspired him gave him faith in himself and kept him keyed up so that he carried on in the face of adversities which would have killed off a dozen ordinary men these incidents have these incidents are cited as evidence that men of outstanding achievement have by accident or design discovered ways and means of stimulating themselves to higher a higher state of enthusiasm associate that which has been here stated with that, with what has with what was said concerning the law of the mastermind in the introduction, and you will have an entirely new conception of the modus operandi through which the law may be applied operandi. You will also have a somewhat different understanding of the real purpose of allied effort in a spirit of perfect harmony, which constitutes the best known method of bringing into use the law of the mastermind. Your employer does not control the sort of service you render. You control that, and it is the thing that makes or breaks you. At this point it seems appropriate to call your attention to the manner in which the lessons of this course blend you will observe that each lesson covers the subject intended to be covered and in addition to this it overlaps and gives the student a better understanding of some other lesson or lessons of the course in the light of in the light of what has been said in this lesson. For example, the student will better understand the real purpose of the law of the mastermind, that purpose being, in the main, a practical method of stimulating the minds of all who are, all who participate in the group constituting the mastermind. Times too numerous to be here described, this author has gone into conference with men whose faces showed the signs of care who had the appearance of worry written all over them, only to see those same men straighten up their shoulders, tilt their chins up at a higher angle, soften their faces with smiles of confidence, and get down to business with that sort of enthusiasm which knows no defeat. The change took place the moment harmony of purpose was established. If a man goes about the affairs of life in the same day in and day out, prosaic, lackadaisic, spirit devoid of enthusiasm, he is doomed to failure. Nothing can save him until he changes his attitude and learns how to stimulate his mind and body to unusual heights of enthusiasm at will. The author is unwilling to leave this subject without having stated the principle here described in so many different ways that it is bound to be understood and also respected by the students of this course who all will remember are men and women of all sorts of natures, experiences, and degrees of intelligence. For this reason, much repetition is essential. Your business in life you are reminded once again is to achieve success with the stimulus you with this with the stimulus you will experience from studying this philosophy, and with the aid of the ideas you will gather from it plus the personal cooperation of the author who will give you an accurate inventory of your outstanding qualities, you should be able to create a definite plan that will lift you to great heights of achievement. However, there is no plan that can produce this desirable result without the aid of some influence that will cause you to arouse yourself in a spirit of enthusiasm to where you will exert greater than ordinary effort which you put into your daily occupation. You are now ready for the lesson on self-control. As you read that lesson, you will observe that it has a vital bearing on this lesson, just as this lesson has a direct connection with the preceding lesson on a definite chief aim, self-confidence, initiative and leadership, and imagination. The next lesson describes the law which serves as the balance wheel of this entire philosophy next lesson in this book is self-control. Anyway, thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Now, the next podcast will finish out this after the lesson visit with the offer, The Seven Deadly Horsemen. And I'm also going to be reading... Think and grow rich. And let me take a look to remind myself what I chose to correspond with this chapter. Think of oh, the mystery of sex transmutation. So that's what it's going to be. The Mystery of Sex, Transmutation, and uh, The Seven Deadly Horsemen. So that'll be the next podcast. Check out Inspirelancing.com if you haven't already. I'm just trying to spread the word on what I'm working on. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait to talk to you on the next podcast.